We are, just to get us a little bit caught up where we are from last week in Exodus 20 as we finish it up. Last week in our message from Exodus 20, we saw the Israelites react in fear when they heard the voice of God for the very first time in their own ears, okay? And their response was to turn to Moses and say, look, you know what? That's a little too scary. Would you speak to God on our behalf? So they actually wanted a mediator, which was a man, to speak with them, right? And they understand that we saw a picture of the fact that Moses was the mediator for the Jews, but we also saw that Jesus is the mediator for us as children of God. Okay, this week we'll be moving into the functional application of the law. Okay, like I said, the law was given to kind of keep this unruly group of people. Realize the fact that these Egyptians, these Israelites, have only known Egyptian law up to this point, right? They've had generations and generations and generations of time, so they're accustomed to ruled by the sword, ruled by the whip. You do this, you do that, or you die, right? So God's going to introduce fairness and justice and things like that into their lives. It's something that they're not accustomed to. But we're going to see this is not about rules and regulations. If you're here for a religious experience, this is not what this is about. This is not about a religious experience. This is about a learning about a God who wants a relationship with you, not you to learn how to follow rules, okay? So as we do go through these stipulations, what I want us to pay attention to is the underlying premises behind each one of the laws. So they're going to be very specific to their culture, but that's not really relevant necessarily to us. We're going to think back to Exodus 18. And what happened in Exodus 18 was Moses was dealing with all of the issues of the people, right? And as he was doing that, he was struggling because the fact is there were so many people, he, could, he didn't know how to judge everything. And what he did was God actually, through Jethro, had him appoint some men to help him. And he picked about 70 men that would work as judges. And what we're going to look at is how those judges apply the law. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us, Lord, to hear from your word. And uh, God, I pray that you'll guide everything today. Lord, I know that uh, I have no desire to be heard. Uh, Lord, I do not want what I want to share to be heard, God. I want what you want us to share. Uh, God, that you'll use my mouth, use my voice, use my mind, Lord, that I might be sold out to you, Father. I want my, the human element of this message to be removed, that, Lord, you might speak truth to our hearts. Lord, give us what it is that we need. We are a needy people. Lord, help us to have ears to hear that we might receive from you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up, like I said, in that Exodus 21, verses 1. We're going to go all the way from verse 1 all the way through verse 36. As we apply these civil statutes, what we're going to see is, as I said, we're going to see a larger picture, not just in the specifics of the law, but a matter of what was underlying in them, okay? They're going to be broken up into three different sections, okay? There's going to be verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11 are going to be dealing with servanthood and servitude. Verses 12 through 27 are going to be dealing with capital punishment, violence, things like that, accountability for violent behavior. And then verses 28 through 36 are going to be talking about responsibilities in regards to ownership of animals, right? I know that's not necessarily relevant to us, but bear with me, okay? Verse number one says this, now these are the judgments thou shalt set before them. These are the stipulations that the judges are going to use. And someone was attacked by a picture. Uh, these are the laws, these are the rules that they're going to be given in how to apply the law, okay? The word servant and slave in the Bible are actually the same word. What you'll see is the difference is how it is actually applied that shows you whether it's a servant or a slave. Traditionally in the world, if you were to be a slave, what had happened is you came from a conquered people, right? You were pushed or forced into servitude. But there were others that went into servitude because of the fact just of their circumstances, right? Sometimes you might have had a bad harvest or you may have a debt with someone. And what would happen is almost like as if you were an independent business owner and you tried to run your own company and eventually your company like flopped and you got, look, I got to get a real job. 
I'm gonna go work for somebody else, right? That's kind of what this is in their culture, right? And then what I want you to pay attention to, it says here in verse number two, it says, if you buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing, okay? We see a pattern there that we've seen before, which is six years of labor, and then, then on that seventh year, there is freedom, right? That's the same picture we saw on the Sabbath, right? We saw that in the Genesis story where Jesus did the creation at six days of creation and on that seventh day of rest. We saw how that was a picture of the 6,000 years of humanity with that thousand-year millennial reign, that seventh thousandth year, that time of rest. We saw it in the, uh, in the Sabbath where God said you're going to work for the six days and take that seventh day off. Now, also in the future, we're going to see where it's actually going to be applied to the harvest, Right? They're going to apply it to the harvest. He's going to tell them, look, what you're going to do, you're going to work the land for six years. I want you to plant and do all that you would do normally for six years. But in that seventh year, you're to take a break. I'll make sure that the harvest is plenteous in the sixth year so that you'll be taken care of the same way you did on the Sabbath. But that seventh year, I want you to take off. And remember, these, Egyptian, these Israelites, they're rebellious, aren't they? They want to do what they want to do. And guess what? For the next 490 years, guess what they will not do? They will not take a break. They'll work the land every single year. And then what happens is if you fix 490 years and you were to take the Sabbath out of that, guess how many years it would be that you need, they needed to pay back? 70, right? And there will be a time we see in the book of Chronicles, you'll see where they're going to go into a captivity in Babylon. And guess how long it's for? 70 years. Guess what? You will not escape God we are all going to face the justice of the Lord. That's one of the things we're going to look at. Remember, we talked about in Galatians 6, 7, God is not mocked, right? He is not mocked. Now, that pattern of six, we see that six years of working, and then they're going to be released. In the first century, to give you an idea of the way servitude took place, okay, that estimated that back in the first century, about one out of every two people in the culture was a servant or a slave. So one out of every two people was in that role. So what we see here is this was a very, very big part of this culture, okay? What we also see is the fact that in the culture outside of the Jews, it was extremely dangerous to be a servant or slave. The Greeks and the Romans were merciless to the slaves and their servants. They literally had no rights whatsoever. They could kill them with no restitution at all. They had treated them just as if it was a piece of property. But what we'll see here is God teaches us and shows us in that seventh year, not only are they released, but look at this. God gives us further detail in De Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15. This is specific. And he says, And if thy brother, an Hebrew man or a Hebrew, Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. That we know, but listen to this. Verse 13, And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock. You're supposed to give him some of your flock. You're supposed to say, and out of thy floor, you're supposed to give him some of his, your furnishings. And out of thy winepress, the, the, the foods and supplies that you have, of thou therewith the Lord hath God, the Lord hath blessed thee with, thou shalt give unto him. He says, you're going to take from what you have, and because of his six years of service, you're going to provide for him. Not only will you take care of him while he's serving you and working for you, but when he leaves, you're going to provide for him as well. How amazing is that, right? This is unheard of. Thou shalt remember, look at this last verse, and thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Remember, you at one time were a servant, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee, right, before I command thee this thing today. He says, look, you get to be a picture of me. You get to show that same thing that you experienced in that freedom, you're going to see in them. This is unheard of in any culture outside of God's people, right? We can see the heart of God. We can see the mercy of God with people outside of this culture who would have no rights whatsoever. We'll know what's whatsoever. So this provision, now look at this. What's really cool about this is we think about this. This person comes to, to this master because they're in a desperate need, right? They have nowhere else to turn. 
Think about us and our salvation. How did we come to Christ? Because we found ourselves in a desperate need. And we went to our master. And we said, you know what? We'll serve you. And then what happens when we serve him? Guess what? He provides for us in our service. And then guess what? When we move on from this life, he provides for us and the one to come of his sustenance. It's a picture of salvation. It's a beautiful thing, man. Consider how we came to Christ. Verse 3. It says, if he came in by himself, and he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. Look, if he was married when he came in, he leaves with his wife. Verse 4, if his master have given him a wife, and she, gave, and she have borne him sons or daughters, and the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. So let's say he comes in, he doesn't have a wife, and he marries one of the other servants that's there. Then they have kids, and his 60 years is up. Well, guess what? On the seventh year, he doesn't get to take that family with him because they're not his, right? It's like as if you went to a, a company and you worked for that company. And let's say they said, you know what? We're going to give you a company car. You're like, okay, right? And you drive that company car for six years, seventh year. You're like, man, I love my car and I'm out of here. And they're like, ah, ah, hey, 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 hey. Uh, that's our car, buddy. If you want to keep using that car, you need to stay here and work, right? So what happens in this situation, that's the same thing. Understand that slaves were a commodity, a very, very valuable commodity at this time. He didn't have that right. But what to say he didn't want to leave, right? He didn't want to leave. Look at this in verse number five. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He says, look, we're going to make this official. You're going to go and testify that this is your choice, right? And he says, and he shall also bring him to the door, unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. An awl is like an ice pick, okay? And he shall serve him. I want you to pay, this, pay attention to this last part. And he shall serve him forever, right? What happens is this servant becomes what's called a bond servant. He's no longer in servitude. Now he makes a free will choice to stay in this situation. And what would happen is actually after they drive the awl through the ear, he would wear a golden hoop in his ear. So when he was walking in the culture, people would know that man is a servant, not because he has to be, but because he chooses to, out of love. Notice the motivation is love. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my children. When he chose to stay, as I said, he became a bondservant. Okay? In the New Testament, the word that would be used there is the word doulos. And doulos means a servant by choice, a servant by choice. And we look here, 1 Corinthians 7, 22 says this, And he that is called the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also, he that is called, who is called being free is Christ's servant, right? Through our service to Christ, we actually, guess what we get? Freedom. We get freedom from sin. We get freedom from this life that has had bondage and control of us for so many years. Some of us go, look, I've been stuck in the same rut for so long and I just can't break out. On your own, you will not break out. Your flesh is powerful, and you will be a slave to it until you surrender your heart to God. And what's amazing about that is once we surrender our hearts, God frees us, man. He breaks us free, and he gives us now. And we look at these rules, and we go, these rules are here to control. No, these rules are to protect. They're to protect. The reason we create rules in our children's lives is not to control them. It's to protect them. Why do we tell our children not to play in the street? And this is the edge. You do not cross this line. This is where you stop because we want to see them do what we tell them. No, because we know in the street there's a car and they don't have the wisdom to know they shouldn't run in front of a car. So God knows these people are so clueless and they're so fleshly and they're so rebellious. He goes, I've got to give them some kind of regulations to keep them under control. 
Dak knows this. He's a police officer. If you didn't have rules, man, imagine what it'd be like out there. Holy guacamole. Even with the rules, it's crazy, right? People are nuts. We can all agree to that. All right. Now, what's interesting also is Paul chooses to refer himself. This word doulos is the same word you'll find in the New Testament when Paul talks about himself. It's one of his favorite ways to describe himself. Romans 1, 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated, I'm set apart unto the gospel of God. God's given me this special duty, and I'm a servant to that. Look at the description of Romans 6, 20, 20 through 22. This is a description of believers. For when you were the servants of sin... You were free from righteousness. You didn't even understand what it was like to be righteous. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? He says, look, there was no value in what you were doing then. There was no value for your future. Before the end of those things is death. That was a death sentence. I mean, stay on that track. You have no chance of life. You have no chance of happiness or joy. Verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life and eternal commitment. Do we remember how long that, that servant was to serve his master? Forever, right? Forever. It's a picture of that principle. Time and again, we'll see the followers described as servants. Motivated by love, this long-term commitment was a, was a love commitment. It was a submittal of the, of the servant's will to his, to his owner, but also at the same time, it was a submission, a submission of his life to him as well. As children of God, that's the very same thing we're doing. We're submitting ourselves to God. We're saying, not my will, Lord, but thine be done. The same way Jesus did in John 17 when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but thine be done. I'll be a servant to you. We go from being a servant to sin unto death to being a servant of God unto life. John 6, 47, Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. It's just a matter of faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not the person you are. It's not the service that you render. We serve out of love, not out of duty. Jesus committed his life to the Father and lived the life of a servant as an example to us. Look in this passage here, and this is in Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6. This is prophetically talking about the suffering that Jesus is going to go through at the cross. But pay attention right before we get to the suffering. It says this, And the Lord God hath opened mine ear... He hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned to him. I willingly, neither turned away, turned away back. He says, I've submitted my will to God. He says, I gave my back to the smiters, those that are going to whip and beat me. I've given my back to them, and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. We know that they ripped Jesus' hair beard from his face. He says, I give it to them. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. The shame and all that he suffered. He gave himself willingly. He never fought it. Jesus gave his will, his all, and his life as a willing servant. The thing we have to check with our own hearts is, is that us? Are we servants because we have to be? Because we feel obligated? Or because we want to be? Are we driven by love? Is that what fuels our actions? Or is it a feeling of, I'm supposed to do this? I'm in church because I know I'm supposed to be. Not because I want God to know that I love him and I want to be faithful to him. Not because I want to come together and corporately sing and lift praises to God. We lose sight of why we do what we do. But what we see in this is an awesome picture of the life a believer should live. If we could just be worthy of being the title, right? A servant of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We're supposed to be servants. Verse 7. 
And if a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men's servants do. If she please not her master who hath betrothed her to himself, he's married her, then shall he let her be redeemed to sell her unto a strange, strange nation. He shall, not have no, he shall have no power, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. That's important right there. What happens is this man is gone, and he's paid a dowry, basically, what would happen. They'd pay in advance, and what we do is he would marry this young woman. And it says here at the end of this, he dealt deceitfully with her because the marriage didn't work out. He turned out to be a bum, right? He's a bum. He may have paid this money up front, but guess what? He's not taking care of her as he should. And what we're going to see is in any other culture, she could be thrown away like she was a piece of garbage. But look what God does. Look what God does here. This payment, right? When he does this, he's not allowed to sell her off to somebody else. He's got to continue to take care of her, right? He's protecting. God's protecting him. In verse number 9. If he hath betrothed her unto his son, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. So if let's say he does marry her off to his son, well now guess what? She's family to him. He's got to treat her just like one of his kids. And then verse number 10, he says, If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and the duty of marriage shall be not diminished. Look, if another woman comes in, this is not God's plan. God is always one man with one woman. That's God's plan. But what happens? He makes provisions in this law to help protect these women because this was the will of the people. They wanted this multiple marriage thing. But if he does... He's got to continue to take care of her. And if he doesn't, there's retribution. Okay? He has got to continue to take care of her. You'll always find God promotes just one man with one woman. Right? This aspect of being protected, I want you to pay attention to the fact that outside of this culture that we see here, women, even in today's world, you can go to the Arab world right now, women are told not to speak and not to think. It's unbelievable the way we can go culture after culture after culture after culture where women are demeaned as if they are property. And I want you to see that God sees value in every single person. He is a merciful God contrary to the way the world treats people. He is a God. He's a good God, a merciful God, and a caring God. So we see the value for humanity. We see the picture of what servanthood is, right? In verse number 12, we're going to shift into the violent crime aspects, okay? Verse number 12, he that smiteth a man so, shall, so that he die shall be surely put to death, okay? This is capital punishment, okay? Capital punishment, this is not the first time it shows up. Actually, after the flood, and in Genesis 9 is the very first time we ever see that show up, okay? But this is a civil punishment carried out to protect the society. It's not for the individual, you're not to be a vigilante and go out and kill somebody because you go, look, eye for an eye, life for life. That's not the way this functions. This was supposed to be done through the judges, through a judicial system. As an individual, God only promotes one thing as an individual that we're supposed to do, forgive. We're supposed to show mercy and we're supposed to be forgiving. But what happens is the society has to be protected because there is someone who's out there killing people. Somebody's got to do something about it. We can't just be like, hey, God, forgive you. But they're, then they go and kill somebody else. So the, the system was put together to protect the people as a whole. This is all justice. So what happens, because we have a, see, we have a propensity for what's called revenge. Anybody like that? Little kid, right? You get poked in the eye. What are you ready to do? Go get a bat, right? I mean, you're ready to, <laughs> we want to we strike back. You're going to know you never poke me in the eye again. I'm going to teach you a lesson, right? That's our, that's our mindset, right? So what happens is God's about justice. He's not about revenge. God's not about punishment. He's about justice. And that was what we're going to see as we go through these verses. It's all about justice. Numbers 35 tells us much more detail about what it means if you are uh, found guilty of this. They're actually going to have a fair trial. It says it's never more than one witness. You've got more, at least more than one witness in order to testify. So all the things that God makes sure that it's fair and that it's equitable for that individual. Verse number 13. And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall go. So look, let's say this is an accidental death. You accidentally kill somebody. You're not planning to do it, but this is, this is the outcome 
some of it. What happens is God set up refuge cities, six of them, that you could run to these cities, and when you got there, you'd be protected, and you would get a fair trial. So God is, again, protecting the individual. We look in our society today, we've got a shift in the way things are, should be, right? It should be about protecting the victim. But we now live in a system, in a society that's about protecting the criminal. It's amazing. You have murderers that are caught red-handed, and they'll find some little stipulation. Oh, well, he didn't get permission before they kicked in his door, and they found the dead body laying on the floor. And I mean, it's unbelievable. They can get people off of these things because their rights were broken. I think when you kill somebody, you've lost all your rights. Personally, that's what I think, but you know, it is what it is. God is going to hold people accountable. As we look at this, this whole thing, this tendency towards revenge is what we're going to deal with. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit further a little bit later on. It says, but if a man uh, come presumptuous, presumptuously upon his neighbor, he planned this, to slay him with guile, with angry, thou shalt take him, take him from mine altar that he may die. What he's saying there is, look, it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter where you hide. There is no escape. If you've done this and you've murdered somebody, I don't care if you're at the altar of God, you are going to be held accountable. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 28 through 31. What happens is you've got David, David who had a, a general named Joab, and Joab went out, and guess what he did? He killed David's son in cold blood. And this was known to be a fact. And what happened when David, when David passed away, Solomon became the king. And Solomon said, you know what? We're going to make sure that Joab pays. And when they go get to Joab, guess where, he's, guess where he is? He's in the tabernacle. The Bible says he's holding on to the horns of the altar, not letting go. And they're going, Joab, come out. You've got to face justice. I'm not coming out. Joab, come in. Where are you? Come out. I'm not coming out. And they go back to the king and they say, look, he won't come out. And he says, well, then fine. Go in there and get him. Kill him right where he is. So Joab's holding on to the altar as... They bring the sentence on him. And God's saying, look, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you go. You will face justice. There is no escape. But again, it's important to note that it's about justice. It's not about punishment. All right? No one is ever held accountable for something that they did not do. And God's never going to be like, oh, I didn't realize you didn't do this. He holds us accountable for what we've actually done. You're not going to be wrongly accused. God knows the truth. And we will face a punishment. The Bible, that phrase, the punishment will fit the crime. That's going to be the case with God. Verse 15. And he that smiteth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. And he that, st that stealeth a man and selleth him, a kidnapper, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. And he that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. We can see here these, that this is the ordinances being laid out from the commandments, right? They're supposed to honor thy father and thy mother. We see these addressed. God is serious about these laws. Very serious, and he wants us to take them seriously as well. That's his point. Verse 18, and if men strive together, strive together means they fight, and one smite another with a stone and with his fist, or, and, then, and he die not, but keepeth his bed. Say one guy gets laid up, they get into a fight, one guy gets knocked out pretty good. Man, he's got a broken jaw, whatever it is, and he's laid up. And it says, if he rise again and walk abroad upon his staff, meaning he'll heal completely, then shall he that smote him be quit. He says, look, he's not going to be responsible. He shall pay for the loss of his time. He's going to make sure he pays him for his lost wages. And then on top of that, it says, and shall cause him to be thoroughly healed. He's got to actually become almost like a caretaker for him and make sure that this man that he fought, right? This is unlike anything you would have heard anywhere else in the world. This is God reflecting his mercy, but also people, holding people accountable for their action. The aggressor was going to have to pay for all that. Verse 20, if a man smite his servant or his maid with a rod and he die under his hand, he shall be surely punished. Everyone is accountable to God. It does not matter if you are the master or the servant. Everyone be accountable. Romans 2.11 says this, For there is no respect of persons with God. 
He does not care who you are, how much money you've got, or anything else, because you will face that thing, that, 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 that uh, justice. That's the word I was looking for. Unlike the majority of the world, God values the life, and it does not matter about the standing in society. John 3.16, we know that God loved the world. John 21, or in, in Exodus 21.21 21 says, Notwithstanding, if he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his money. Okay, this is talking about the fact, oh, I'm sorry, I missed number 20. It said, if a man smite his servant, yeah, if he smite his servant, but he says, and if you continue a day or two, so basically he says, look, this is just standard punishment. Let's see, he does something wrong and he gets punished, but there's no long-lasting injury, then there's no issue for the owner. Verse number 22, he says, if men strive, they fight, and hurt a woman with child, this is an important one, pay attention to this, he says, so that her fruit depart from her. Okay, so let's say these men, she gets injured, and when she does, it causes her to have a premature labor. Okay, and yet no mischief followed, the baby is fine. He shall surely be punished, she shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So this guy, even though the, the, the baby's okay, he's still going to be taken before the judges, and the husband gets to go, look, I think he should give me three ox. And they're like, okay, well, that seems fair, all right, three ox to this guy, right? And that's their whole thing. So the judges are going to hold him accountable, this pregnant woman. But listen to this next part. If any mischief follow, okay, that means that if the child were to pass away, then thou shalt give life for life. So the unborn child has the same value as any other human being. The exact same thing. We see God's belief when it comes to that unborn child. They have value. He's valuing them, and this person will be accountable for that. The penalty is the same for this unborn child as it would be committing murder. Then verse number 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay? Remember I talked about our desire for retribution, right? We talked about the fact that, you know, if somebody knocks out one of my teeth, what do I want to do? All their teeth, right? I and mean, you need to lose them all. <laughs> I'm just saying, you're going to swallow your entire, how many teeth are there? Dentist, 32, I had no idea. So you're 32. I may have lost one, but you're eating 32, brother. Your, your belly's going to be full. You're going to learn, right? So what happens is it's not justice, it's revenge, right? And so what God's done, he said, look, you need to make sure that this is just. You lose a tooth, you lose a tooth. It's a foot, it's a foot, it's a hand. He's given this stipulation for that purpose to control our natural tendency to want to go overboard. All of this is designed to help deal with the natural tendencies we have to do the wrong thing. It's about punishment to fit the crime. Verse 26, and if a man smite the eye of his servant and the eye of his, uh, or the eye of the eye of his maid that it perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. So this servant gets hurt, loses their eyes. So look, your, your contract's over. You're free. And if he smite out his servant's tooth or his maidservant's tooth, he shall let him go free for his tooth's sake. So that bond, that, that requirement of them staying and working is gone. They're absolutely free for the loss that they did because guess what? Abuse is never acceptable. This is never acceptable in God's eyes. And the rest of the world's servants had to forfeit their freedom, but also they forfeited their actual lives and their rights as human beings, but not here, not with God. 2 Thessalonians 1.6 says this, Seeing it is a righteous thing, with God no recompense to, to, with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. God says, look, I will take care of you. Someone wrongs you, trust me to handle it. You don't need to take it into your own hands. That's what, again, we see God stipulating and putting together through putting these judges in place. Justice will be done. Okay. Now, we're going to shift over to livestock. And I know this one's, none of us have oxen, right? If you have oxen, I want to come see them. But... Have you ever experienced your ox goring someone, right? 
Probably not. Goring is stabbing him with our horns, right? So most of us are going to hear this and we're going to go, how does this relate to me? I don't have any oxen. It's never hurt anybody. But anyway, just bear with me. There's an underlying principle that we're going to look at, okay? Verse 28. If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. He says, look, your animal goes out and it kills somebody. The animal's going to be destroyed, just, to, just so you know. But you're not going to be held accountable. Because guess what? This is an accidental thing. You could not have controlled that. God is fair. But look at this next part. Remember, God looks at the heart. This person was innocent. Verse number 29. But if the ox were wont to push, it says, look, this animal has a history of being dangerous. In his horn in time past, and hath been testified to his owner. Look, he knows that this animal is dangerous. And he says, and he hath not kept him in but that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner shall be put to death. He knew it was dangerous. He was purposeful. And the fact that he was absolutely uh, uh, careless, and through his carelessness, this person loses life, and he is responsible in that ownership, right? It's the same thing. Manslaughter, you're driving a car, you hit somebody. Guess what? You're accountable. You're accountable. It's the same. God holds people accountable. If there be laid on him a sum of money, then he shall be given for the ransom for, of his life, whatsoever is laid upon him. Let's say if the family says, look, we don't want him to die, but we want him to pay. Recompense us. That'll help us. The judges get to decide what's going to happen in that regard. Whether he have gored a son or have gored a daughter, according to this judgment, shall it be done unto him. Whatever the judges choose, with that, in, the, in the situation, if it's a child, if it's paying money or the person's life, they decide. If the ox shall push a maidservant or a manservant, or a manservant or maidservant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. In this instance, what happens is we see the going rate for a slave or a servant. Guess what it is? It's 30 pieces of silver, right? Can we think of somewhere else where 30 pieces of silver is relevant? Remember Judas, right? He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the same cost of a slave or a servant. It's amazing. Another picture of the servitude of Christ and the fact that here is the king of the universe, King Jesus, serving and giving himself the lowest of the low. That's the lowest price you could pay for a human life anywhere. And that's what they paid for Jesus' life. Philippians 2.7 says this, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Verse 33, and if a man shall open a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit and not cover it, and an ox or an ass fall therein, the owner of the pit shall make it good and give money unto the owner of them that the dead beast shall be his. So you dig a big hole in the ground, you don't mark it, and an animal walks and falls in, you get to keep the animal, but guess what? You got to pay for the animal. Doesn't mention people, because I guess God figures people are smart enough to walk into a pit. We really, oh, don't step in there. Hopefully we are that smart. But all comes down to personal accountability. That's what God's saying. Look, do the right thing. Verse 35. And if one man's ox hurts another that he die, then, shall, then they shall sell the live ox. So he says, look, the one animal kills another. The one animal that killed the other is going to be sold, and they'll divide the money of it. And the dead ox they shall then divide. So they're going to split it up. Look, we both have a loss. We'll make sure that's taken care of. Again, fair compensation. Or if it be known that the ox hath pushed, hath used to push in time past, it's a dangerous animal, and his owner hath not kept it in, he shall surely pay, uh, pay ox for ox, and the dead shall be his own. He's going to pay for the loss of the animal. Okay? So to our, in our first section, we saw right, the world kind of from the perspective of the servant, that mindset. right? We saw one that was a servant through circumstance. Another one was there by, by choice. right? We see in that picture the willingness of the servant through a lovingly giving his life to his master. We see a picture of Christ in that. And then we see a picture of us 
in that, that servitude. It's not a merely of serving, serving. We don't serve the Lord because he's like, you do what I say, right? When we love our parent and we react because our parent asks us to do something and we gladly do it because we want to see the smile on their face, we're doing it because we love them, right? There's a huge difference. One is forced to. One by choice wants to. One desires it. One burns to put, to, to put joy into the heart of this person that they want to serve, right? In a relationship, husband and wife. Husbands, you should want to serve your wife. And wives, guess what? You should want to serve your husbands. We do it out of love because we care for them. We should put their needs above our own. We serve our families. We do these things not because we have to. If you're in a situation you feel like you have to, you need to check your heart. Your relationship's wrong. Put your spouse above yourself. Kids, honor your parents. Love them for all that they do for you. The fact that you have a house, a place to live, you have clothing, you have food, that protection. They want the very best for you. We've got to be willing to see the truth of what God wants us to do, this beautiful picture of what a servitude is. In our second section, we witness the justice of God, right? Directed towards sin. And the sin will be held accountable, right? God is about justice. He's about justice. And he's dealing with this rebellious people that are against his law. That's us, right? We are constantly going against the law. When we feed our flesh, guess what? We're going contrary to God's will. We live righteously or we live unrighteously. It's a choice that we get to make every single day. And we're constantly vacillating between the two, back and forth, back and forth. But we saw that the punishments that God brings, guess what? They're always just. We will get what we deserve. If we sow into our flesh, the Bible says we will reap corruption. If we sow into our spirit, we're going to reap life everlasting. Where are we investing our heart and our energy? Are we investing in the things of God where we can see it bring fruit in the life of someone else? Are we being selfless? Are we caring for others? Are we feeding ourselves? Feed yourself. Guess what? You will be empty. We saw these punishments were fair. In our last section, we saw how God dealt fairly with mankind. And as he valued them, right, he valued humanity, but he, he valued that personal accountability, that we need to be accountable for the things that we do, our actions. His expectations were that, would, would, would be that things would be done decently and in order. So God has expectations. So as we look at these different areas, even though we don't have animals, guess what? It's about accountability. You do something wrong, make it right. God's, God's expectations. Like, just do the right thing. That's how it means to live a righteous life. How do I go through this life and do what's right? How do I know what Jesus would do? You can go back to these laws and go, look, what is this? This is about justice. It's not about revenge. It's about truth. It's about honesty. It's about being real. It's about being, about being honest and straightforward with people. It's about being a servant and have a heart of love for others. There's beautiful imagery in here if we can learn how to see it and apply it to our own lives, right? The whole point of this is, bottom line is, the Lord has created these laws and the system to implement to bring order into a, cap, into, a, into a life that's very chaotic. Understand, these Jews did not really have a system to follow. They've just received the Ten Commandments. They spent six weeks now here at the base of the mountain. They've only been out of, out, of, out of Egypt for six weeks. God's plan is that they're supposed to spend 11 months in this time being shrewd and being prepared for what will happen. And then a few weeks, they're supposed to be in Canaan. That's the plan. God wants to happen in about a year. We know what's, that's not going to be the case, but that's God's plan. His whole thing is to bring, this in, to bring them to where they need to be. And the other aspect of this is to reveal sin, right? I can't know if I'm doing wrong if I don't know what right is. And God gives us a line in the sand that says, this is right, this is wrong. When I'm here, I know I've done wrong. And when I'm wrong, guess what? I know there's accountability for it. And that's one of the things as Christians, we recognize this accountability to God, and that's what draws us to him. So as we look into the law of liberty, the Bible, right? Do we see ourselves as that willing servant driven by love? Do we trust the Lord to implement justice on our behalf? 
Or do we think we need to handle it ourselves? I know we're all guilty of that sometimes. Do we trust the Lord to do what's best for us? Or do we spend our time saying, life's just not fair? It's just not fair. If we trust God, the Bible says, walk by faith and not by sight. I can face any situation with that same understanding, and I can go through it smooth and calm and peaceful. Or I can feel like I need to handle it on my own. God set a standard for us to follow, and whether we want to accept it or not, we will all be judged by the law. Either to reveal our sin to us, till we realize that I'm accountable to God, and realizing that in that accountability, that if I pay the price for myself, I will open my eyes in the devil's hell, and I will not have any, any hope. Or I can say, you know what? I trust. I realize that I'm lost. I realize that my lost condition. I realize that I need God. And I'm willing to submit my heart to you. And Lord, Jesus, again, showing the mercy of God. The reason why Christ went to the cross is mercy, man. It's grace. It's love. Not for him. Not for him. It's for us. It's solely for us. And here we are in the world. We complain about God doesn't do this. God doesn't do that. Man, God's given us all. We, we don't deserve anything he's done for us. Yet he loves us right where we are. And he comes where broken as we are. And he accepts us with all of our sin and all the things that we do wrong. And he looks at the law and he goes, here's what you should have done. And we look at this laundry list of all the things we've done that are not of the law. And God says, but I asked you to do this. These things are simple. They're painted on your heart. Lost people know that murder is wrong. Lost people know that stealing is wrong. It's painted on your heart, but you still choose to stand in disobedience. He says, but in spite of that, I love you. And in spite of that, I'm going to give you a way out. In spite of that, I'm going to go to the cross. And in two pieces of wood, I'm going to build a bridge to heaven. And you can walk across that bridge, but you get to choose. You get to choose. Because guess what? We can suffer the punishment for ourselves. God will let us. He's not going to force himself upon us. We'll all face accountability to God. No one's going to escape. But guess what? Because of God's love, because of God's justice, because of God's fairness, the punishment will be exactly what we deserve because we have done these things. God's never forced us. The devil doesn't force us to do anything. He may tempt us, but you and I have what's called free will. We get to choose. Sometimes it's really hard, man, because our flesh is like, dude, I really want this. I really do. But God's given us the ability to fight it. He says that there won't be, he said that there will not be a way of escape. God will put a tremendous amount on us, but he makes a way of escape, and that escape is him. It's him. Romans 4, 7 says this, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. They're covered. God looks at our sin debt, and through the blood of Jesus Christ, when he lays that sin debt, that debt written out, and if you had a scroll that was written and it rolled all the way out this door, and every sin you'd ever committed, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever it is, it's all written in red. They're written in crimson. You took blood and you poured it over red writing. All you would see is the blood. And when God looks at our sin debt, if Jesus has paid the price for our sins, he no longer sees our sin. He sees nothing but the blood of Christ. The righteousness of Jesus covers our sin. He pays the debt that we should pay. And the beautiful thing is, once it's paid, it's not paid up to the time I'm 52 years old. It's not paid up to 52. God knows the day I'll take my last breath. He knows. If I live to be 144, we'll see. If we live to be 144... God knows how many heartbeats I'm going to get in 144 years. He knows how many hairs I'll have left on my head. How many hairs I'll have left on my back. Who knows, right? <laughs> He's going to know every detail about me. 
So in the future, I'm 52 years old, I've sinned, yo man, I got a mountain of sin up to 52. But guess what, 53, 54, 55, 56, I haven't seen them yet. But God has. And he's paid for all of it, man. It's all done. So when I make a mistake, I don't lose my salvation. God saved me forever. He paid, saved the, he paid my debt for my whole life. And what it does, all I do is I affect my relationship with God when I'm, when I'm rebellious. And God wants me to know that, you know what? You're my son. That blood didn't stop here, son. Went all the way down. And when I look at you, I don't see a sinner. I see a righteous man. Not because you're righteous, but because my son is righteous. And he took your place on the cross. You deserve to die, but he died for you. That's the picture of Jesus. That's the picture of servitude. That's a picture of, of justice and fairness. God didn't give us what we deserve because he loved us more than that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you, God, for the message and what you've shown us in your word. And we ask, God, that you please help us. Help us to be submitted. Help us, Lord, to realize that there's so much more about this life than what we think it is. Help us to realize, God, that there's such beauty and service to you. And that, God, if we'll do it with the right heart, Lord Jesus, that you will fight for us. You are a just God. You'll fight for us and protect us. God, you'll, you'll take care of us. You'll make sure that things are fair for us. You'll provide for us in our life. And, God, you'll walk with us through every tribulation that we face. And ultimately, when we face eternity, you've already paid the price. You've made provision for us with your own blood. Thank you, God, for loving us with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I'm not a child of God. Maybe I have a religious experience. Maybe I know about God. Maybe I, maybe I read the Bible. Maybe I pray. And these things are all good. Don't get me wrong. But there's nowhere in the Bible that says that if you believe in God, that you're going to go to heaven. The Bible says we're saved through faith. Because guess what? The devil believes in God. He knows he's real. The demons tremble in the presence of God. They don't doubt God's reality but they have never submitted their will to God's. And that's what it comes down to. Am I willing to submit my will to God? If you know there's been a time in your life when you've done that, you've given your heart to Christ, you said, I submit my heart to God, and I trust that he is exactly who he says that he is. He has the power to save me. I receive the gift of God, his death, burial, and resurrection. And you know you've done that? Praise God, you are a child of God. But if you've never done that, 18 years ago, I'd never done that. I believed there was a God, but I knew nothing else about him. And all they did was show me what it means, who he was. And I had to make a choice. Do I want to do it on my own? Or do I want to trust God and walk with him as his child? I made a choice 18 years ago that changed my life. And if you've never made that choice, whether you're online, whether you're in the overflow, wherever you are, it doesn't take a preacher. It doesn't take anything special. It's a matter of a heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, of the mouth confession is made unto salvation. God is calling you right now, wherever you are. And his heart is for you to come to know him. Today is the day of salvation. If you've never done that, you can do it today. Like I said, it's nothing special, but it is a prayer in your heart. A choice of you allowing your heart open to receive what God's given you. And to call on him by faith. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in your seat. You don't have to pray out loud. This is in your heart and in your mind. And if your desire is to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior by faith, guess what? He is ready and willing and able with his arms wide open, ready to receive you as his child right now. But it's all in your court at this point. You make the choice. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive that gift of God, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. As I'm going to pray out loud, I'm going to have you repeat it in your heart and in your mind.
And remember, it's not the words that you're saying. There's no magical ceremony here. This is not a religious experience. This is you talking to God yourself in your heart. He hears you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for all that I've done wrong, for those that I've hurt and the mistakes that I've made. I'm sorry. I come today wanting to make things right with you. God, I want to be right with the, the one that loves me. You died on the cross because of that love. And I ask you with all of my heart to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, and to pay the debt that I cannot pay. You died, you were buried, and when you were resurrected, you proved you were God. Lord, thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for saving me. By faith, I will see you one day in heaven. Amen.